Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon entitled, This Is My Year. This message explores the question, what does God think is possible for you in the new year? We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select contact us, and send us an email. If you've been uh, coming to our 21 Days of Prayer this week, I, I've mentioned this book a lot. I've been reading a book by John S. Dickerson. It's called Jesus Skeptic. And, and in it, he's a journalist, and he explores the impact of Christianity on the world and on human history. Uh, in his book, he makes the case that because Jesus came and people believed in him and committed their lives to following him, that the advances in the world we live in today would never have happened without Jesus. And he goes back to the primary historical sources to determine how committed followers of Jesus are responsible for all of these things. Take, for instance, the the scientific revolution. It began in the 1500s. Now, a lot of people think that science and faith don't go together, but what he does is he goes back and he looks at folks like Blaise Pascal and other scientists who started the scientific revolution, and he goes to their journals and to their papers, and he sees them talking about their faith in Jesus Christ as they're pursuing their studies of science. And there, from there he goes on and he looks at the, uh, the, the modern university system that we take for granted, but he goes back and he traces the founding of some of the most important universities in the world and in this nation today, and he discovers that all of them, not some of them, all of them were started by followers of Jesus who wanted to promote the furthering of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then from there, he goes back and he, he wants to say, well, what about uh, you know, hospitals, modern hospitals today? And as he goes back and he, he traces the roots back to the founding of some of the most prestigious hospitals, some of the best hospitals in the world that are in this country, and he discovers that all of them were started by Christians who wanted to care for other people. You, you see, we go back centuries, we, we even go back millennia, and, and when medicine was starting out, um, you know, only the wealthiest people had access to somebody who was considered a doctor. The, the poor people didn't, and so the majority of the population were poor, and so these were Christians who were going out of their way to care for the least of these, and that's really how we have modern hospitals today, and, and you go back and look at them, and they were all founded either by Christians or by doctors who had studied with Christians. And then he says, well, what about uh, the care for uh, human independence? And, and he goes back and he traces through the history of both Britain and the United States, and he sees that, that those people who were Christ followers who took seriously Jesus' statement to set the captives free looked at their society, looked at their own lives and said, wait a minute. I own slaves. And they became abolitionists. They set their slaves free. They granted them their autonomy. And then they started the abolitionist movement, which led to the end of slavery in the Western world. Now, you need to understand, in some cases, at that uh, back... uh, in history, 
that the majority of many of the populations of countries, the majority were people who were enslaved and indentured. So this was a radical concept. And all of these people were, were Christ followers. And then he says, well, what about literacy? And he goes back and he traces back to the roots of people who stress the emphasis on teaching people to read. Why? For the sole purpose of being able to study the teachings of Jesus so that they could become followers of Jesus Christ. Much of this happened after the Reformation that started in the, in the 1500s. Why? Because people who were followers of Jesus Christ said, listen, if I'm going to follow Jesus and I have a passion, a passion to help people read, a passion to see people that are enslaved free, a passion to use my brain to develop things that, that were unknown before, science, medicine, technology, I'm going to do it. And he says, you know, if you take Jesus out of history, none of those things exist. You know, and not being disrespectful, but he said, you know, there, there are no um, hospitals in that time period started by uh, um, followers of Marx or followers uh, of Muhammad or followers of Confucius. They're started by followers of Jesus. Now look, um, there's no reason for us to get proud, okay, or arrogant, because he also points out in the history of Christianity that people who call themselves Christians have also done some things uh, that were uh, wrong, sinful, and inappropriate. So, uh, but, but big picture, you know, we need to understand is that people who were serious about following Jesus Christ, who were obedient to him and what they saw in Scripture are responsible for doing so much of what we take for granted today in 2020. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, uh, in 1833, the American Anti-Slavery Society was founded in, the, in Philadelphia. And it was founded by people citing their faith in God had led them to form this society. And even in their charter, it says, even if we become martyrs. I mean, that's how tense this was in 1833 in our country. All right. Within two years, there were 400 local chapters of the American Anti-Slavery Society, of which the majority of the leaders actually happened to be pastors. One such leader was Elijah Paris Lovejoy. Lovejoy was both a pastor and a newspaper editor, and he used both his pulpit and his pen to tear down slavery. Lovejoy uh, is... Uh, was said that he would actually call out slave owners and he would declare that slavery was sin. And uh, this made him very unpopular, as you can imagine. In fact, anti-slavery um, uh, anti advocates um, came down and burned down his print shop four times. The fourth time they came, they killed Lovejoy. He wrote these words. He said... I am governed by higher considerations than either the favor or fear of man. I have appealed to the Constitution and the laws of, this, of my country. If they fail to protect me, I appeal to God. And with him, I cheerfully rest my cause. I can die at my post, but I cannot desert it. Fateful words. Because of his faith in 
and his obedience to Jesus. Love, joy made the ultimate sacrifice. But um, not only does uh, Dickerson, who wrote this book, take uh, stories from history about people who were obedient to Jesus and changed the world, but he also shares contemporary stories like that, this one of Jonathan and Susan Coff. In the early 1990s, Jonathan and Susan were living the American dream. They had a comfortable home, a profitable business. They were providing well for themselves. They had a comfortable lifestyle in the mountains of Arizona. And back then, Jonathan says, we were into the groove of the American dream, thinking about how much money we would make and how we were going to retire early. And that's, he says, when God began tugging on our hearts. He said, uh, as a devout follower of Jesus, he says that uh, God would not let him be satisfied with the American dream. He writes, I realized that I was living full time for myself, really, uh, to make a living, to make a retirement, to be secure, to be comfortable, all of those things, he writes. But then he said he was convicted by the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. He said, I realized I wasn't matching up to that. I was seeking first my kingdom, my financial status, my comfort, whatever. He said, it was all about us. And over time, we realized we've got to make a break from this. Now, they had heard about remote tribes in the undeveloped back reaches of the jungle in Papua New Guinea, and motivated by their faith in Jesus and his teachings, the cops sold their business. They abandoned the American dream in order to follow Jesus into the jungle. They began to get training because they genuinely believed that Jesus loved these people in Papua New Guinea. In 1999, they moved there and they began to meet with the, uh, began work with the Hewitt tribe. The Hewitt tribe had actually asked if missionaries could come and live among them because they saw the benefits that missionaries bring. And so the Coffs went there. They began to build relationships. They began to learn the language. They began to share Christ in their words and in their deeds. They eventually helped the Hewitt people develop a written language. And then they began to translate the Bible into that written language. And then they began to teach the Hewitt people how to read and write. They're changing the world for Jesus. Why? Because they know the call that Jesus has on them, and they are obedient to him. Now, I gave you two examples, one of somebody who was obedient to to God at home, one who felt the call to overseas mission. The reality is we're all called to be obedient to Jesus. We're all called to follow him. So why am I telling you all this this morning? Uh, Because God is our king. And God has an agenda for his followers. Last week I told you about the king's agenda for us is that we would forgive others as we have been forgiven. Today I want you to know that God's agenda for us, the king's agenda for us, is for us to follow him obediently. And I'm going to turn to the words of Jesus, okay? In the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people of Jerusalem confront Jesus at the temple, and they question his authority. They want to know who authorized him to do what he's doing and to say what he's saying. And in response, Jesus gives them a trilogy of parables, and each parable builds upon the other. Here's the first parable. What do you think about this? A man with two sons 
told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed the father, Jesus asked. They replied, the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe in him and repent of your sins. What's the message here? God wants our obedient actions more than our empty words. He's confronting those leaders for being disobedient to God. First, while they claimed to be doing God's will and discharging their responsibilities, they were actually blatantly disobedient. Second, these leaders had gone beyond neglect of their spiritual responsibility to the point of abuse and persecution of those sent by God, even including God's own son. And third, in refusing their God-given responsibility, these leaders were also refusing to accept God's gracious blessing, the privilege and honor of serving as his instruments and the eternal reward that comes with that. The first parable is immediately followed by a second parable, and it eerily foretells Jesus' death. In the parable, a landowner builds a vineyard and he hires some farmers to come and look after it while he goes away. At harvest time, the landowner sends uh, his servants to collect his share of the harvest, but the people managing the landowner's vineyard, they beat up and kill the servants. So the landowner sends more servants and they do the exact same thing. Um, Then finally... Thinking that they will listen to his son, the landowner sends his son, but not only do they not want to listen to him, they grab him and they beat him and they kill him. And then Jesus turns to the chief priests and the elders of the people, and this is what he asks. He says, when the owner of the vineyard returns, what do you think he'll do to those farmers? The leaders replied, he will put those wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him a share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. So things are getting more clear because the leaders realize that Jesus was referring to them as the ones who disobeyed the agreement with the owner of the vineyard and and had abused the messengers that had been sent. And now these disobedient leaders were rejecting the son who is Jesus. So you you see, they were the builders of Jerusalem, of Judaism. They had rejected God's plan for the building of their faith. And in this disobedience and rejection of God's plan, that also meant they were ignoring the messages that Jesus was bringing. Jesus, who would be the cornerstone of everything. And it was this cornerstone, Jesus, that they would stumble over. And he would be the one who would judge 
their disobedience. The second parable is about the leaders disobeying their responsibility to follow God's plan and share it with the people. So we see one parable after another calling into question the disobedience of these leaders. But Jesus isn't finished. He still has more to say. And in the third and final parable of this trilogy, this is what he says. He talks about the king. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by a story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, The feast has been prepared, the bulls and fattened cattle have been killed, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Others seized the messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious, and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to, in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he said, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. And then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's a complicated parable, so let's unpack it. This final parable basically shows that the leaders in disobeying God's invitation to participate in the kingdom are also rejecting the privilege and honor that comes with participating in God's kingdom. So in the parable, the king sends two invitations. One commentator points this out. Uh, Those invitations carried the force of a command because this was a king sending them out. So to disregard the invitation or the call was not an option. Rejection of the call went beyond discourtesy. It went to the point of rebellion and disobedience. So in this story, the audience would have understand who the characters were. The king was God. The messengers that were rejected or killed would be the prophets that God had sent to Israel over the millennia. And then the son it's Jesus. And, and Jesus is, this, is central to this story because he is the one <clears throat> for whom the wedding banquet is being prepared. And this wedding banquet, this wedding feast, represents the future union between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the bride, who would be represented by God's redeemed people. So when those chosen by God and invited to the banquet reject the king's invitation... The king says, go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. And so the king's servants bring in both the good and the bad, filling up the the banquet call. This open invitation by the king represents God's grace and inviting all people to his kingdom. As you read this, now I understand it's shocking then, as it was now, that, that God accepts the worst of sinners unconditionally. As long as a sinner shows a willingness to accept God's grace by faith, God will transform them into a kingdom citizen. Now, uh, with such a group of people, the king filled his wedding hall, 
And it was a blend of good and evil, of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, wealthy and poor. So truly the Lord is saying that he would bring all nations in. So he's foreshadowing what would happen. Now, maybe at this point the, the parable gets a little confusing uh, because uh, somebody who's been invited in from the streets gets thrown out of the banquet hall for not being dressed correctly. Uh, scholars point out this, that um, when guests were invited to a wedding hall, many times in the first century, uh, they wouldn't have to have wedding clothes at home. There would actually be a selection of wedding clothes to put on at the banquet. So they would be the cleanest and the best clothes that a person had ever worn. And in this story, what's happening is this man is dis- displaying disrespect by wearing less than the best that is available to him. So the the king addressed this man. Interesting, he he addresses him as friend, implying that he knows him, implying that he's open to an explanation, but the man has no answer. So he's, he's guilty of failing to honor the king's son in a proper manner. And as scholars point out, they give us an understanding of what this means in the, the big scheme of following Jesus. The garment referred to is the righteousness of Christ provided through his death. To refuse it would be to refuse Christ's sacrifice. To refuse Christ is to refuse life. So this disrespectful man was recognized as ill-prepared, as every imposter will be. And so he was thrown out. Then Jesus closes this parable with a very definitive statement. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Clearly what Jesus is saying to the chief priest and to the elders of the people is that though they were called, they were not chosen. Because they were not faithful, they were not obedient to God. Jesus calls his followers, to be obedient to him. It's, it's an idea that, that Jesus repeats over and over in Scripture that, that his sons and daughters, his followers, are supposed to be obedient to him. Let me share with you some verses that illustrate this. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and then do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord and then do not do what I say? Think about that. Reflect on that personally. Why do you call Jesus Lord and then disobey what his teaching is? That's what Jesus wants us all to recognize is that if we're going to call him Lord, that means he's our leader. That means he's in charge. He's the one that we submit our lives to. He goes on in the Gospel of Mark and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, look, I know this just screams against the culture that we live in because our culture is all about not denying ourselves. But Jesus says, listen, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross. In other words, your obedience to to following me. And I want you to be a faithful follower. God calls people to follow and obey him. Jesus calls us to follow him. As one commentator writes, God's offer of covenant relationship with Israel 
carried a price for those who accepted it. But that blessing and that honor that the kingdom citizen received would far outweigh the cost of discipleship. So yes, there is a sense of calling that we're called to be obedient and faithful to him, to deny ourselves. That's the cost. But he goes on, and this is what he says. He says, God offered redemption, forgiveness, salvation, and reward. Those who rejected God's grace were displaying blindness to the point of insanity. They returned a curse for God's blessing. They returned a curse for his blessing. And that calling and that blessing from Jesus is the same for you and me. In his own words, this is what Jesus said. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, that's the paradox of following and obeying Jesus. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to be obedient. He calls you to be his faithful follower. He says, you need to do this. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But then he tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. It's the paradox of following Jesus that we give up our will for his will and we embrace it and we discover that his will for us is the best thing that we could have ever imagined. It's this idea that, that we think, you know, to be uh, fully in charge of our own lives and to determine everything about them and to not have anybody in leadership over us is the best thing. But he tells us, it's actually not the best thing. The best thing is following him. And his obedience comes, our obedience to him comes with a blessing. The paradox of, of recognizing that we give up our lives and we gain far more than we would ever know, that we could ever expect. Jesus is our king. That's his agenda for us, his agenda that we follow him. His, his agenda would be that we follow him and know him and seek to be obedient to his teaching. Now, look, I, I recognize this, that this idea of being obedient for many people can be overwhelming, all right? It, it, it can be overwhelming. So there are two things that I, I want you to remember about being obedient to Jesus, that will help you. This is less from Scripture and more from me. Very simply, take it one day at a time. Take it one day at a time. Uh, don't allow yourself to get overwhelmed. And here's the, the second thing. Accept grace. Give yourself grace. You and I will make mistakes as followers, but if we genuinely come to God and repent, he will forgive us. And think this one through. If we get so upset with ourselves, overwhelmed with ourselves for making mistakes and not forgiving ourselves, basically what we're saying is that, that Jesus' death on the cross that forgave us of our sins wasn't enough for us to forgive ourselves. There's a lot bound up in our culture about 
saying that we will be obedient to someone other than ourselves. Even that word, we push back on it. But Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. So as I reflect back on the book that I've been reading, and I think about those followers of Jesus Christ who said, you know what? I'm going to do what God's calling me to do to the best of my ability, whatever it costs. I'm going to do whatever God's calling me to do, and I want to help other people whatever the cost. I'm going to do what I think God's calling me to do one day at a time, with one person at a time, with one thought at a time, so I can give God my best. You know, we have the beauty of hindsight looking back on their lives. They may have no idea in their lifetime on earth how God used them to change the world. Because think this one through. I mean, we're talking about less than 500 years of history. And in those 500 years of history, so many dramatic changes have happened. In fact, if we just go back 200 years, so many things have happened that have helped God's created creation, his sons and daughters. You know, in, in the last 200 years, the, uh, a little bit more, the, the life expectancy of, of human, humans has gone from, in the world, has gone from somewhere in 40 years to somewhere in the high 70s, mid 80s. Uh, all of that has come because followers of Jesus Christ have said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus, and I have a passion for education. I have a passion for science. I have a passion for uh, uh, medicine. I have, I have a passion for seeing that people can live free, whatever it was. And they said, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability to honor God. I'm going to invite Dan to come up because we're going to close with a song, but uh, as we prepare for that, what I really want to do is... is pray for you. And so um, I want to pray that, that God will work in you. So I'm going to invite you to stand up and uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to move into this song, okay? Just as uh, in this time, I want us to think about what God is calling us to do as faithful followers of Jesus, men and women who are fully devoted to Jesus and, and what God can do for us through us, what God can do through us and our obedience. So let's bow our heads. Father, in this place, as we recognize what you're calling us to do, to be faithful and obedient to you, Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives for your glory. Lord, we ask that you would uh, take uh, the gifts and the abilities, the time on this earth, that you have allowed us to have and allow us, encourage us, empower us through your spirit to be fully devoted followers, to seek to be obedient to you in every area of our lives. And Lord, as we do so, we ask that you would work in us and through us, that you would grow your kingdom and, and help us care for one another and build the kingdom of God. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to be fully devoted to you. And if we fail, Lord, let us come to you repentant and ask for forgiveness 
And we know that you will forgive us and restore us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.